there was no special song. No special song. Okay. Tonight we want uh, to invite, I have invited uh, my uh, son-in-law, Brother Tim Show, to bring the word, and I'm looking forward to what he has to say tonight. Amen. And uh, we we love Tim and Amy being in Palmyra. Praise God. <laughs> love them being here. And uh, we just appreciate all that they do already. But uh, asking him to bring the word tonight. Let's get with him. Help him preach tonight. God bless you. Thank you, Pastor. Sometimes I call him dad. Sometimes I call him pastor. I call him. Yeah. Yeah, it depends on what he wants. Sometimes I just hit ignore. No, just kidding. Never. Never. We are, like I said, we're so honored, like, to be here, to be with y'all. It's it's amazing. You guys have made us feel so welcome. I know I've said this before, but. Man, to uproot your family, move a couple states away, and just to settle down into such a warm church family, such a a warm body of believers who gather together with like mind and like faith. This is a revival church. We, We didn't join a church that's dying and on its way out. This is a revival church. Like Brother Axon said, our best days are not behind us. Our best days are in front of us. There's been a lot of reaping and a lot of sowing that has gone on. And, and I was reading as I was studying tonight, and he, and he said, you, you are gonna, you're going to reap where you sowed not. Because there's those who have gone before you that have sowed the seed. And while we're reaping, we're not just reaping, not just bringing in a harvest. We're sowing more seed. We're throwing out more seed because we want the revival that it doesn't just stop with this harvest. We want a harvest next year, and we want a, a harvest the year after that. But we are stepping into a season of harvest. We don't need to wait four months and say the harvest will be ready in four months. He said, lift up your eyes into the fields, for they are now white unto harvest. We're excited about revival, not that's coming. Revival that's taking place. Axon leaned over to me tonight during one of the songs. He said, Dad, what does it mean when it says, breathe on me? And so I kind of explained to a little bit. And the rain on me, the Bible says that the latter rain will be greater than the former rain. Our best days are not behind us. There's a latter rain that's coming that's going to far surpass the greater rain, the previous rain that's coming. We, we, we have a, a greater revival that's out in front of us, and we are just walking into that. We hear the sound of abundance of rain. I need to get to my notes. They, before people had cell phones with clocks on them, Preachers used to take their watch off, and they would lay it on the pulpit. Does anyone remember that? Well, you know what it means when a a preacher takes his watch off and lays it on the pulpit? Absolutely nothing. (laughs) Sometimes I'll ask my wife after I'm done, I was like, how long did I go? She's like, oh, you went a long time. I was like, no, I didn't. It wasn't that long. It was good, though, right? (laughs) The sad part was, back in Minnesota, she missed most of the times I preach because our kids were younger, so she'd end up in the nursery. So um, I just preached it to her on the way home. She needed it. So, you know, sometimes I feel like that's why God gave it to me. I got to preach to my wife in the car ride, and, and then she preaches right back to me. Amen. 
stand with me tonight. Turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Verse 1, we're going to read down through verse 7 initially, and then we'll come back to that. When pastor reached out to me last week and asked me to preach Sunday night, I began to think about what I wanted to preach about, and I didn't have anything right off the top of my head, and that's Friday night as worship began, God laid on my heart what he wanted me to preach. And lo and behold, Brother Ethan Hagen got up, and he read his text, and I was like, okay, yeah, we're good. And then he jumped over to John chapter 4 and began to preach what God had laid on my heart. So I promise you, if you were at camp meeting, I'm not just going to re-preach what, what Brother Hagen preached. I'm actually going to go a little bit of a different direction with it. But John chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. When therefore the Lord... Sorry, let me... Uh, yep. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more than John... Though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed into Galilee. And he must needs go through Samaria. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus on the well. And it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. And we are going to stop there. And we're going to come back to that. But Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we thank you for your mighty presence that we've already felt here tonight. God, we thank you for the move of your spirit that we felt. God, we know that your word is already anointed. Anoint me tonight to preach your word. God, open our hearts and our ears. God, help us to not only be hearers, but God, to be changed by the power of your word. In Jesus' name, you may be seated. You may be seated. Throughout our day-to-day lives, we make appointments. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. I want to talk about a divine appointment. A divine appointment. But throughout our day-to-day lives, we make appointments for many different things. When you're sick, you make an appointment with your doctor. When we have legal matters that arise that we need taken care of, we, we make an appointment with an attorney. And we meet with that attorney to try to resolve those legal issues or those legal matters that may come up. We make appointments. If you have children, you make appointments with teachers to discuss progress at school. Us guys, we make appointments with... Sister Alicia, what do you want to be called? I literally was typing up my notes and I was like, well... I don't really want to say that I go to a beautician because, I mean, you just can't fix this. Like, there's, it doesn't matter how hard or how good of a haircut Sister Alicia gives me. I, I don't walk out feeling beautiful. So we walk, we go see our hair stylist, our hair cutter. We go see the person who cuts our hair. 
If you have issues with your eyes, you need to get your eyes checked, you make an appointment with an optometrist. When you have issues with your skin, you make an appointment with a dermatologist. If your pet has an issue, you make an appointment with a veterinarian. When we schedule these appointments, it's because we have some sort of need. And we have reached a place in our lives where the desire to have this need and this issue resolved has outweighed the desire to live with whatever that issue may be. I remember some years ago I was sitting in a psychology class and uh, I, I was going back to school. I, already, I went to Gateway right out of uh, high school and Amy and I moved back to Minnesota and I was an electrician for for know, seven years, something like that. And then I got out of the trades and I went back to school um, for law for or criminal justice and with a minor in psychology. And I was sitting in one of my psychology classes and I was, I don't know, 30 some of the time maybe. And you're in class with a bunch of 17 and 18 year olds. So I, I, I sat right in the front row, you know, plus I'm paying for my education and, and I want to get the most out of it. I can, but I'm sitting right in the front row and I'm taking notes. And, you know, at the beginning of the year, it was fine. But as the school year began to progress, I noticed I was having a harder and harder time seeing those notes. And I would begin to squint. And I'd be like, oh, things were looking a little blurry. And also with this, I had transitioned from working construction to an office job where I now sat at a computer for eight hours a day. So the sitting at the computer for eight hours a day, the sitting in class looking at slideshows and taking notes and going home and reading textbooks and writing papers and writing essays and doing homework was taxing on my eyes. And things just meant to became, I, I was getting headaches because I, I felt like I was straining my eyes and I was working so hard to focus on things. And, and I'm stubborn. And so I'm like, ah, I can deal with it. And plus, I'm not that old. I don't need glasses. I'm still young. Has anyone ever been there? Anyone ever been there? Like, I, no, glasses are for the old people. I, I don't need glasses. I'm young. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the reminder. He said, he said, you wear glasses. Well, that tells you where I'm at. But my eyes begin to digress. And so I finally, I relented. The need for sight outweighed my need to feel youthful. And so I made an appointment with an optometrist the first time in my life, I think, that I've ever went to an optometrist, and I got my eyes checked. And, he's, and I explained to him, he's like, okay, what, kind, what do you do? Uh, what kind of things are you into? Or, you know, do, what do you do for work? And, you know, and I explained to him, I go to school, I, I work at a, sit at a desk all day, I look at computers, and he's like, okay. And I was like, he's, you know, he said, do you have any trouble seeing... F- like far, or, or and I was like, nope, I can I can see things far. I can read that just fine. I can see faces when I'm driving. I can see signs. I said it's just the things that are up close that I have a hard time focusing on. And sometimes when my eyes get tired, I, I some of the things in the in the in the distance become blurry. He's like, oh, it sounds like you need readers. I was like, well, slow down. Now my dad was old and he wore readers. I wasn't old. So I guess I reached that stage in life where I relented and got glasses. And soon after a couple years, 
those corrective lenses weren't strong enough. And I had to go back and get a stronger prescription. And I, I remember like Amy trying on my glasses one time and she's like, well, you're blind. And I'm like, I am really not that blind. I just need a little bit of help. And recently, I, uh, we, we moved down here. I went to Specs in Quincy and saw the doctor there. And we began to talk about the prescriptions that I had, two different prescriptions. These glasses are one prescription, and then my other pair is a different prescription that's a little bit stronger. These ones I can see, read my notes, and I can still see in the distance just fine. My other ones are a little bit stronger, so I can read my notes fine, but when I look up, you guys are all blurry. And she said, well, what it sounds like is you need transitional lenses. I'm like, you mean spectacles or bifocals? Not spectacles. I mean, who am I, Benjamin Franklin? What do you, she's like, do you, you, need, you need transitional lenses. I'm like, I'm not wearing bifocals. She's like, oh, no, no, no. These are just transitional lenses. They give you that, that upper half that is a lighter prescription, and it blends into the bottom half that's a little bit longer. It just gives you a little bit more. She was so kind about it. She said, it just gives you the little bit of help you need when you're reading. And so they got me all set up, and I, I stepped out and saw Sister Sarah Walker, and she helped me uh, get fitted for the correct frames and the correct lenses. It was so funny. When my glasses came in, these aren't my new ones. These are my old ones. When my glasses came in, she called to tell me that my glasses went in, and I didn't. I think I was on a call for work, so I couldn't answer it. And she left a voicemail. She said, hi, this is, this is Sarah from Specs and Quincy. Uh, Sarah Walker from church. <laughs> and she was just letting me know that my glasses came in. But she was, so when I saw her in church, I was like, your message cracked me up. She's like, yeah, I, I didn't really know what to do because, like, you know, I don't just call guys from the church. And she's like, but I, I wanted to let you know that your glasses were in. And I was like, as soon as you said, it's Sarah, like, I knew who it was. You didn't have to say Sarah from Specs, Sarah Walker from church. But anyways, it gave me a good laugh. And Sarah got me all fixed up with, uh, with my new glasses. She got them. I got a, a wide noggin, and, uh, and so she helped me get my glasses stretched out so they wouldn't push on my temples and give me a headache. And I think we're finally all squared away. I got one more pair that just came in, so I got to go back on Monday and pick up my last pair that came in, and I think we're all squared away. But my need had finally weighed enough that I desired change. I had dealt with the issue long enough And it had brought me to that point where I desired a change. We're going to go back to John, and we're going to work through these texts. I I promise you, I'm going to try to work through this quickly. It's a long passage. I want to kind of, John, if we can just get them up there, and we'll kind of flow through it. I may not read exactly what's on the screen. I may just uh, summarize and keep it going. But I I want everyone to be on the same page with where we're at. I don't want to assume that everybody knows this story. So we're going, to come, we're going to jump back to um, just the beginning there. Jesus now had, he was leaving Judea. The, the, the pressure began to grow on them because they were baptizing more than John the Baptist. And that began to draw the attention of the Pharisees and those that were in charge. And the pressure began to mount against Jesus and his disciples. So he said, it's time to go. And they were headed to Galilee. Now on his way to Galilee, he said, I, I must needs go through Samaria. Jesus made the intentional decision that he must go through Samaria. And I'm sure his disciples questioned him because there is a more 
a bypass that, that's there so that, so that the, the Jews who don't like the Samaritans can bypass Samaria altogether and go from Judea to Galilee. But Jesus is now saying, I have to go through Samaria. And so I'm sure his disciples questioned that decision and, and kind of like made sure, like, Jesus, are, are you sure this is where you want to go? And when he arrived at the city in Samaria called Sychar, he settled down at Jacob's well on a parcel of land that Jacob had given to Joseph. And verse 5 tells us that being weary from his travels, he settled by the well, and a woman came out to draw water. It was about noon. The Bible says it's about the sixth hour of the day, which is about noon. Now, this wasn't a typical time for a woman to be out drawing water. The women from the city typically came out in the morning. They typically came out early before the sun got to its highest spot and the heat of the day was upon them. When they had to go carry those waters, they didn't want to do it in the heat of the day. So they would come out usually earlier. But this woman, for whatever reason at this point, we haven't met her yet, is coming out at noon. Jesus' disciples had already headed into town to get meat so that they could eat. And Jesus sat by the well. In verse 7, Jesus tells the woman, give me to drink. And I can just imagine what's going through the mind of this woman as she approaches the well. And there's this strange man who she can clearly see is a Jew. There's this strange man sitting at a well, which is probably already intimidating, that she's coming out to draw water and this man is just sitting there. And he's a Jew. They don't like Samaritans. That adds to the, the escalation that could be taking place. And now he tells her, give me a drink. Verse 9 gives her response, and she says, How is it that you, a Jew, ask of me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus responds in verse 10. He said, If you knew the gift of God, and you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would have asked of me a drink, and I would have given you waters that you may never thirst again. I would have given you living water. Now, verse 11, the woman's not quite drawing the, the spiritual connection there. She's still thinking in a physical sense. The woman at the well, she's come, she's come to draw water, and Jesus is saying, I would have given you water that you would have never thirsted again. I would have given you living water. And the woman says, how so? How would you have given me to water? You have nothing to draw water with, and this well is really deep. Are you, are you greater than Jacob? Are you greater than our fathers? Are you greater than the prophets? Verse 13, Jesus tells the woman, whoever drinks of this well and this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. But the water that I give shall be in them a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Verse 15, the woman is still not grasping that Jesus isn't talking about physical water. Jesus, and so she says to Jesus, she says, give me this water that I may never thirst again. She's still thinking in the physical sense. This is a woman who has to go out every day in the heat of the day and draw water. 
and haul this water back to town so that she and her house can have water to drink. So when Jesus tells her that you, I will give you living water that you'll never thirst again, she says, give me that water. She's still thinking in the physical sense. If I, if I don't have to come out every day and I don't have to endure the shame and I don't have to endure all the things that I go through to get water, give me that, give me that water because I don't want to do this anymore. She still is thinking in the physical sense. She never wants to have to come back to that well to draw water again. And I love this interaction between Jesus and this woman because Jesus offers little bits of information. Jesus could have come right out in his first sentence and said, I'm Jesus. He could explain the water. He could explain what he's talking about. But he made little statements, little statements that began a conversation. It began a back and forth. It, be, it began a conversation between Jesus, the Jew, and the Samaritan woman. And there's this little back and forth that happens. And, and, and Jesus begins to just give her little questions, leading questions, like a teacher. A teacher. When, sometimes when we're trying to teach our kids things, we don't just give them the answer. We ask questions, and we, and we give them little bits of information so they can try to put these things together in their own mind. I remember as an electrician learning how to do a three-way switch. Some of you, this will be over your head, and that's okay. Some of you will appreciate this. I remember being an apprentice as an electrician trying to figure out how a three-way switch worked. And people would tell me, my boss would tell me, you do this, you do this, and you do this. And I, I just did what he said because that's what you do. When the boss tells you to do something, you just do it. But I didn't understand how it worked. And sometimes I would get in a hurry or I would make mistakes because I didn't really understand what he was telling me. I was just, I was just doing what he said to do. But one day I went home and I broke out my colored markers. And if anyone's ever seen wire, you, in a, three, uh, a 14-3, for example, you have a black, you have a white, you have a copper, and you have a red. And I begin to draw out and map how a switch over here and a switch over here could possibly, with the wiring that we ran, could possibly cause this. And I, and I traced out the paths that the electric current would take. And suddenly it clicked in my brain and it just made sense. It made perfect sense that at one end with three ways the way they work is not to get two in the weeds, but there's a common at either end. You have two travelers that go both ways, and there's a common at either end. One end, it's a, it's a switch leg, the one that goes up to your light. And then there's at one end, it's a power feeding in. And there's different tricky things you can do to switch and feed at the same place, but we're not going to get there. But all of a sudden, it just clicked, and it made sense to me. And going to do those switches from then on just made sense. And I could buzz through it. I didn't make mistakes because I understood the process. But sometimes when we're teaching our children something, we don't just give them the answers. We, we, we ask them questions, and we give them little bits of information so that they can put it together, and they can solidify these concepts in their brain and make the connections. You can see the, new, the neurons forming and the, the new pathways that are forming when they begin to connect that two and two is four, and that two times two is also four. And it doesn't matter if you mix them up, it doesn't matter if you, two times four is eight, but four times two is also eight. And you begin to make these, these, these neural connections, and they just understand. There's something that clicks in their brain. So Jesus could have just told this woman right out front who he was. But he starts a conversation, a back and forth, that begins to pull a little bit out. 
and a little bit out. And in verse 16 down through 18 is where it really starts to get interesting. Jesus now tells the woman at the well to go call for her husband and then come back. And she tells Jesus, I have no husband. Jesus says that you have chosen your words well, that you have no husband. The fact of the matter is that you've had five husbands, and the one that you're living with now is not your husband. Now the picture starts to become clear of why this woman was coming out in the heat of the day to draw water. She was a a woman of, of lesser moral repute. Her reputation had been damaged, that the people in the city, the women of the city, probably talked about her. The, 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 the men in the city didn't want to be associated with her for obvious reasons. They, they didn't want their name tainted. They, they, didn't, they didn't want their name to be dragged through the mud because they were seen with this woman. So we understand now why she's coming out in the heat of the day all by herself. In verse 19 through 20, the woman starts to see that this is little more than some random Jew sitting at a well. And she quickly changes the topic. She, like many of us would do when Jesus calls us out on our failures and our faults and and the sin that we're trying to hide and not show anybody, she quickly changes the discussion. And she says, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she begins to delve into the topic of where the correct place to worship was. The the Samaritans say that they should worship in this mountain, which was Mount uh, Gerizim. And the Jews say that they should worship, that worship should take place in Jerusalem. Jesus responds in verse 21 through 24, and he tells her that the time is coming and is now when all that worship him must worship him, not in this mountain, not in Jerusalem, but all that worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. The true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. And God says, he says, God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit And in truth. Verse 25, the woman tells Jesus that she knows the Messiah is coming and that he will tell them all things. He will make everyone's understanding clear. Verse 26, very important verse. For the first time in the Gospel of John, Jesus declares himself as the Christ. When he says, I that speak unto thee am he. This woman says, we we know the Messiah is coming. We understand that prophecy. We know he's coming. And and Jesus, of all the people that he he had met with previously, we're going to get back there. We're going to jump back and talk about that. But he revealed himself to a woman, a Samaritan of, of ill repute that was at a well. The first time in the book of John, he reveals who he was to this woman. Verse 27 says, about this time, the disciples started coming back, and they were amazed that Jesus was talking with this woman. And in verse 28, the woman's so excited about what she had had just been revealed unto her, she leaves her water pots. The whole purpose that she had come to that well that day, she left laying at the well, and she ran back to the city. As she came into the city, she began to announce to everyone and anyone that would listen, come see a man who told me all things that I have ever did. Is he not, is this not the Christ? In verse 30, we see that they came out of Samaria and came to Jesus. Skipping down to verse 39. 
many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him because of what the woman had proclaimed. So when the Samaritans came out to him and heard him speak, they besought him that he might, that they might, stay, that he might stay with them. And he stayed with them two more days. Verse 41 tells us that many more believed because of his own words and said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you told us, but because we have heard him for ourselves and know for sure that this is the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now it was her testimony It was her proclamation that came into the city that when she came in and she said, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Surely is this not the Christ. It was her testimony that led them to Jesus. But it was their experience that convinced them. It was their experience with Jesus that converted. It was their experience with the master that solidified in their mind that, yes, this is the Christ. Everyone in this room has a testimony. And we have an obligation. We talked about it in, in connect groups that we are debtors. We are debtors to the Greeks and to the Romans. We have, God has done something in our lives, and we have a responsibility to go out and proclaim that truth and to proclaim that gospel, to show what God has done in my life with everyone that I come into contact with. And guess what? It's your testimony that's going to draw them to God. It's your testimony. And your testimony is not just the words that you speak. Because we've all been around those Christians who want to testify to us about being Christians, and then in the next breath they're out cursing and doing this and talking about how they went to the bars and went drinking and this and that. And, and something in my spirit, that doesn't line up. If I'm proclaiming to be a Christian, to be Christ's life, then my, my life has got to align with what Jesus aligned with. My life has got to follow after the one who I claim to be like. So it's my testimony that leads them to Christ. But it's that experience with Jesus Christ. That saves the soul. Flipping back in the book of John to chapter 3, we see that there was a, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus belonged to a 70-member Sanhedrin, the supreme Jewish ruling body of the day. He was a very influential man. And we find in this divine appointment that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Very interesting, interesting in contrast to the woman at the well who came out and met with Jesus in the heat of the day. You see, everybody knew who she was. Everybody knew her reputation. So her experience with Jesus, she, she didn't mind that anyone knew that she had met someone who, who was about to change her life. And she wanted to share that with everyone. But Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this this member of the Sanhedrin, comes to Jesus by night. He comes under the cover of darkness and he meets with him in secret. So no one will know that this elite Jewish leader is meeting with what many claim to be a false prophet. Verse 2, he says, We can see that thou art a teacher come from God because no one can do these miracles that you have done except God be with him. Verse 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that except a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now this this born again throws Nicodemus for a loop. Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a leader. He's, He's an intellectual. He's the one that people come to when they have questions about the scripture. 
He's the one that people come to for answers. And now Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you be born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, not in verse 4, not understanding what Jesus is saying, said, how is this possible? Can a man enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? Verse 5 through 8, Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless you are born of the water and of the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 9, Nicodemus asks, how can these things be? And Jesus responds in verse 10, and he, and he kind of pokes at Nicodemus a little bit, and he's saying, aren't you a leader in Israel? Aren't you a learned man? Haven't you studied the scriptures? How is it that you don't know these things? If I, if I talk to you about worldly things, if I talk to you about earthly things, you would understand this. But how, how is it when I talk to you about spiritual things, something that, that is deep that you are not understanding? He kind of pokes at him a little bit because you know, sometimes God has a way of humbling us. When we come to him and we come to him braggadociously bringing all the things that we have to offer. Isn't that cute? When we come to Jesus bringing the things that we have to offer. And God has these ways of, and mostly I think it's just us, of us humbling ourselves. Our own human frailty gets in the way. But he begins to poke at Nicodemus a little bit. And in verse 11 through 18, we're not going to read all of it, but Jesus lays out the plan of salvation for Nicodemus. Skipping down to verse 19, he said, and this, is the com- and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world. And men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. The story of Nicodemus ends there. This leader of the Pharisees, who ironically came to Jesus in the dark, under cover of darkness. I love the the parallel of these, these passages of Scripture and the things that Jesus brought out in there. But the story of Nicodemus ends there. He's mentioned a couple more times in Scripture when Jesus is brought before the Sanhedrin for questioning. But the Scripture never tells us of a conversion experience for Nicodemus. Nicodemus sat with Jesus himself. He had the plan of salvation laid out to him. He spoke and he conversed with Jesus. And they talked about the deep things of God. But for Nicodemus, the need for change was not great enough to cause him to change. Nicodemus had a lot to lose. He was one of the respected men. And what would it look like if this Sanhedrin, this man of, of, of leadership walked away from the things that they had taught. And Nicodemus decided that the, it just, it was, it was too much. He had too much to lose. In Luke chapter 18, we see a ruler coming to Jesus and asking what he can do to inherit eternal life. Verse 19, in an attempt to get the young ruler to recognize Jesus' divinity, 
the man, the man says, good master. We go back to, go back to 18. And a certain ruler asked of him saying, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then in verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 19, Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? Is none good, save that one is God? Again, poking a little bit, getting this ruler to recognize the divinity of God. He called him good master, and he said, why are you calling me good when only God is good? Do you see what he, he's like, you see, I'm him. I'm him. He had just revealed himself to a woman at a well. He met previously before the woman at the well with a man named Nicodemus. He did not reveal to Nicodemus that he was the Christ, that he was the Messiah. But he revealed it to a woman at a well. So when this rich, strong ruler comes to him and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In verse 19, in an attempt to get the young man to recognize Jesus' divinity, he says, why do you call me good? Verse 20, Jesus presents five out of the ten commandments. He says, do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother. In verse 21, the young man responds and he says, all these things have I kept from my youth up. At this point, he's feeling pretty good about his potential for salvation. At this point, he's feeling, he's feeling pretty good about the life that he's lived and, and the good deeds that he's done. He, he was a, a good person. There's many people in this life who believe that salvation is just based on our good works or our good deeds. If that's the case, then why do we need Calvary? If I can be saved alone off my good works, then why did Jesus have to come and die on a cross? Why did he have to bear the weight of the sins of the world? Why did he have to shed his own blood that I might have healing? Why did his bones have to get broken? Why did there have to be a crown of thorns placed on his head? If I can be saved by my good works, then why did all that have to happen? The young man's feeling pretty good. He's looking at his good works and he's feeling pretty good. But Jesus responds in verse 22. Yet lackest thou one thing. Sell all that thou hast and distribute to the poor. That thou may have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Verse 23 says that the ruler went away very sorrowful. Because he was very rich. Again, that is the last we hear of the rich young ruler. He wanted to have eternal life. He asked, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? He was feeling pretty good about the first five. But when Jesus said, sell all that you have and follow me. See, when Jesus called the disciples to follow him, he said, Take no money. Take nothing to eat, nothing to drink. Take no wages for today. Take no wages for tomorrow. Just follow after me. Trust me. I got a phone call from my brother-in-law this last week, and we were talking about job situation, and he's got a decision that he has to make regarding a different job situation. And and he was kind of walking through where he was at with this job and the, the things, the, the pros and the cons of switching to a new job. And and. And I told him, I said, Josh, sometimes 
You just have to step out of the boat. You have to step out of the boat. And he's like, I just, I just wish God would just tell me what to do. He's like, he's like, I went to church that night. This was last Wednesday night. He said, I went to church tonight, and they had a special speaker. And No, it was Thursday night. They had a special speaker, and he said, God, if you want me to take this job, I want you to have the preacher tell me to jump out of the boat. And my, my sister was like, you can't do that. You can't do that. And then when he called and talked to me, he said, it's odd that you said you got to step out of the boat because, and he explained to me what he had said. But I said, Josh, I don't know that God necessarily cares where you work. God's going to bless you because of your faithfulness. God, God's going to bless you because you put your faith and your trust in him. And he was saying, I just wish God would tell me what to do. And I was like, if God just told you what to do, then what, what's, what's the good of faith? What's the purpose of faith? If I, if I know every step that I'm going to take, then I don't need faith. Because I already know what's going to happen. That's why when I walk into a situation and I don't know what's going to happen, I have to step back and say, God, I can't do it on my own. But I'm putting my faith and trust in you because I know you've never let me down before. I, I know where you brought me from. I've already been through this storm, and I've already been this storm, this storm, and I've been through this storm. And your track record shows me that you're not going to leave me where I'm at. And so I said, Josh, sometimes you just got to step out of the boat. So when Jesus told his disciples not to bring anything, he said, come follow me, but you got to trust me. you got to trust me that I'm going to take care of you. They left, they left jobs where they were taking in wages. One of them had a, a family. They left family to come follow after Jesus, but they trusted that Jesus was going to take care of them. There was no conversion experience for the rich young ruler. Because the cost for him to follow Jesus was just too great. He wanted to have eternal life, but he just wasn't willing to give up the things that he held in confidence. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't willing to give up that money that gave him confidence, that gave him strength. He, 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 he didn't want to give up the things that made him feel secure for a life of faith. Lastly, We look at Luke eight forty three and 48. There was a woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years. The Bible tells us that she had spent all of her living on physicians and none could heal her. You know what that tells me? This is a woman who had made appointment after appointment after appointment, after appointment. She had tried. This, this wasn't a woman who was just sitting on the sideline and content to deal with the issue that she had been dealt. But she planned. She made appointments. She went to doctor's appointments. She spent the money that, that she had to spend to go see those doctors in hopes that one of them would be able to step in and heal her. And it just didn't happen. All these appointments. All this money spent. All these visits. The tears that she cried. When she was all alone in her house. The doubts and the things that went through her mind. All that. And she's 
still right back where she started. But something began to change. She had heard that Jesus was coming close by. All her other appointments had failed. And she decided it was time for a divine appointment. She pressed through the crowd to where Jesus was. And she touched the hem or the border of his garment. And then after Jesus turned around and took the oil out and anointed her, she was healed. That's not what it says. It says she came in behind him and touched the border of his garment and immediately, immediately the issue of blood was stanched. Jesus, recognizing that virtue had went out of him, stopped. And he said, who touched me? Which in itself is a ridiculous question. He was in the middle of a crowd. There was multitudes of people that were pressed around him. And this is Jesus. This is, this is the person who people came to see. This is the people who everyone wanted to be around. This is, this is their modern, this is their hero, right? This is, this is the guy they all wanted to touch. You know, when, when an, all, when a, when an uh, athlete comes through, an all-star, they all want to get in the tunnel, they want to touch him, and they want to give him a high five. And then they want to reach out and they want to touch him. So when Jesus said, who touched me, his disciples are like, are you kidding? What do you mean, who touched you? There's people everywhere. But Jesus said, no, somebody touched me. He had, he had sensed that virtue had gone out. This woman, seeing that she could not be hid, came, trembling, falling down before him, and told him what was happening in her life. She said, Jesus, I've had this issue of blood for 12 years. I've went to doctor appointment after doctor appointment after doctor appointment. And no one can do anything for me. I've tried this and I've tried that and, and nothing has worked. But I've heard what you've done. I, I've heard of the miracles that you have done in other people. I've heard of the testimonies. I've heard people come in proclaiming what Jesus had done for them. And, and I knew that if I could just get to where you were, if I could make it to that divine appointment, that maybe, just maybe, you could do something for me. Jesus told her to be of good comfort. Your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. This woman needed a divine appointment. Her need had got into the place where she had had enough. Everything that she had tried could not touch the issue. And the need for something pushed her to the point where she desired a change. I can't keep living like this. This is going to kill me. God, I need something. If I could just touch the hem of his garment. If I could just touch... The hem of his garment. A 
a divine appointment. Jesus doesn't do anything random or by happen chance. Everything that he does and has done has been done with intention. He said, I must needs go through Samaria. I have to. But Jesus, don't you want to bypass this and go right to Galilee? That's where we want to end up. And he said, I, I have to go through Samaria. There's a divine appointment I have to be at. And it's at this divine appointment with this lowly woman. A woman who you and I might be careful to be seen with. He begins to minister to his, the need right where she was at. Where everyone else had condemned her. Where everyone else had thrown shame on her. He ministered to her right where she was at. And he revealed, he said, I am he. She said, we know the Messiah is coming. She said, he said, it's me. It's me. It's me. And she realized, who else could it be? Who else could it tell me all the things that I'd ever done? Who else could tell me all these things? Allow me to use this figuratively tonight. Because we know Jesus is omnipresent. He's a spirit. He infills the expanse of the universe. He's made a trip tonight to the Pentecostals of Palmyra. And he said, I, I, I must needs go through Palmyra. Because there's somebody there who has had enough. Because there's someone there who's been battling, battling, and battling so long. I must needs go through Palmyra. Maybe you're here tonight and you've been battling things in your life. Maybe you're battling addiction. Maybe you've been battling depression. Maybe you're here tonight and you've been even contemplating suicide. Maybe you have an illness that you just can't shake. Maybe you've been having financial troubles. Maybe you've been having marital issues. Maybe you've gotten to the place where you're questioning your own faith. And doubts have begun to creep in to the corners of your mind. And you're wondering, is it still worth it all? Is it worth it? Maybe you're here tonight and you have not yet received the Holy Ghost. We don't have the privilege of being able to sit and have a conversation with Jesus in the flesh. But we have the next best thing. After Jesus had died and buried and he arose again before he had ascended into heaven, he told his disciples, he said, I'm with you, but I shall be in you. I'm with you now, present tense, in the physical. I'm with you. But I'm not always going to be with you. But I shall be in you. He said, I I have to go away in order for the comforter, in order for the Holy Ghost to come and inhabit this temple, I have to go away. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
He said, but go tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued from power with on high. If you have not received this salvation, if you have not received that Holy Ghost, that's all it is. Don't be thrown off by the term Holy Ghost. It's simply the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. The book of Acts chapter 2, it tells us what that experience is. It said, men and brethren, what shall we do? It said, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So the first thing we need to do is repent. We need to ask God to forgive us. And then after that, we begin to lift our hands. Once we've repented, and we've asked God to clean out those things that don't belong in our life, and we've made room for him, we begin to just lift our hands. And if you want that Holy Ghost, if you want the peace of God that passes understanding, you can have it tonight. You can be filled with his spirit tonight. No matter what the situation you came in battling, what the situation you've been struggling with, just like the woman at the well, the woman with the issue of blood, Nicodemus, the rich young ruler, you've arrived tonight at a divine appointment. Now, how you leave this appointment is up to you. God is a gentleman. He will not push himself on anybody. If you are not ready to receive what God has for you, then he's not going to force himself. You've come to a divine appointment tonight. And how you leave is up to you. Stand with me. I want our praise team to come. I don't know who this is for tonight. I I don't know what you came in tonight dealing with. And I don't need to know. But I don't believe that anyone is here by accident. If you are in this house tonight, you are not here by accident. You're like, you're right, I'm here just because someone invited me to come. You've arrived at a divine appointment. You've arrived at a place where the spirit of Jesus is at. And he wants to make a change in your life. That thing that you've been battling with, that issue that, that, you've, been, that you've been struggling, that thing that you've been battling, he wants to make the change in your life. Just like the song says, If you walked in sick, you're going to walk out healed. If you walked in bound, you're going to walk out free. Because just the mention of his name, everything can change. Everything can change. If you walked in heavy, you're going to walk out light. If you walked in weary tonight, it's going to be all right. Because at the mention of his name, just the mention of his name, everything can change. Everything can change. If you walked in down, you're going to walk out up. If you walked in empty tonight, 
He's going to fill your cup. Because at the mention of his name, everything can change. Everything can change. If you walked in broken, if you walked in broken tonight, you're going to walk out whole. There's someone who came into this house tonight broken, broken, broken in your spirit, broken in your mind, just broken. You've reached the point where you don't know what to do. You've tried everything else. But if you walked in broken tonight, you're going to walk out whole. If you walked in lost, he's going to save your soul. Because at the mention of his name, everything can change. Everything can change. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. When I've reached the end of my rope, when I've reached the end of everything that I've tried, all the appointments that I have made, I call out Jesus. 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 God, I've come to this place tonight. I've come to a divine appointment. God, I've come needing something from you. And I don't want to leave the way I came. God, you have divinely orchestrated me being here tonight. God, and I come to you calling on your name. God, believing that if I could just touch the hem of your garment, that you can make the difference for me. I wonder if there's anyone who would step out of your pew this morning, this evening, make your way to the